Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Our annual year-end mailbag episode is coming up. If you've got a burning question, make sure to send it over before December 14th. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Doug Ford comes out blasting against the new Ontario Liberal leader, but the attacks lack one important element, actual facts. The Auditor General report is out, and it's a doozy. We dig in. Doug Ford is poised to reverse his decision on breaking up Peel Region, why he's looking to back out of the deal. And in your column, my column, I'll focus on the government's apparent second thoughts about dissolving Peel Region. And my column focuses on the new Ontario Liberal leader's first week on the job, which, by all accounts, went pretty well. It's Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. So let's get to it. Howdy, partner. How you doing? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? I am A-OK. Uh, we got, uh, I guess we should say off the top here, you and I are in two different locations today, as opposed to looking at each other's sunny countenances across the microphone on the second floor of 2180 Young Street. But uh, through the magic of technology, we're going to get this done. Absolutely. Done it before. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, no doubt we'll have to do it again. Let's dive into the mailbag uh, right away because we got a lot of stuff to cover on this week's podcast. We do love getting your feedback at onpolitics at tvo.org. So send us an email, onpolitics at tvo.org. JMM, what's up this week? Uh, we have something from X, uh, what we used to call Twitter, or what, do we still call it a tweet if it's from X? In any case, uh, from listener Jack, who writes, Love your On Poly podcast. Question, do MPs or MPPs have to live in the riding they run in or move there to run, and if successful, represent that riding? As a Torontonian, could you run in an Ottawa riding for the party of your choice? Weird if true. Ah, it may be weird, but it is totally the case. There is no obligation to live in the riding that you run in. There is no obligation to move into the riding if you don't live there, but then you win it. It is certainly conventional wisdom that it's preferable to live in the riding you represent, with the theory being you're closer to the ground of your constituents' concerns if you actually live amongst them. You are certainly open to the allegation that you're what they call a parachute candidate if you don't live in the constituency you represent, and some voters care a lot about that, and some voters don't care at all. Uh, I guess we should say, JMM, there are plenty of politicians that people know that actually don't live in the ridings that they represent. And if you look at the current legislature at Queen's Park, uh, Peter Bethlen-Falvey represents Pickering-Uxbridge, but he does not live there. Uh, the Minister of Finance lives downtown. Uh, his mentor, the late Michael Wilson, who was Brian Mulroney's finance minister, he represented Etobicoke Centre in the House of Commons, but he too lived in Midtown Toronto. Uh, let's do one more. Ken Dryden represented York Centre in North York, uh, but he too lived in Midtown Toronto. So I think it's fair to say that if they like you, living outside the riding isn't going to be a problem. And if they don't like you, they're probably going to vote against you for other reasons anyway. I'm actually struggling to think of an MPP who lost an election specifically because they didn't live in the riding. Uh, we mentioned the PC candidate in the recent Kitchener Centre by-election uh, lived in Keswick, 150 kilometres away. But while I definitely heard some snickering about that from the other candidates, I think it would be a stretch to say that it was a material factor in the results. Yeah, I, I can recall many campaigns 
where somebody who was losing said, you can't vote for that guy who's in the lead because, after all, they don't live in the riding. And they try to make the so-called parachute candidate an issue. And like you, I can't think of where it ever really was. Um, you know, that's that's kind of the last argument that losing candidates use in order to try to st- turn things around their way. But as I say, I can't think of it's ever worked. I, I think it also relates to something we discussed uh, either last week or two weeks ago about the issue of uh, party leaders uh, not having a seat in the legislature necessarily. And of course, this is exactly that kind of circumstance where a party leader uh, might find themselves an easy seat. You know, they uh, don't need to uh, necessarily live in a safe riding for their party, but a uh, an MPP representing, for example, a safe liberal riding uh, insofar as those exist anymore um, could resign tomorrow and Bonnie Crombie would uh, have an opportunity to run for that uh, that riding. And of course, sometimes you still lose, and John Tory, for example, could tell stories about that. Um, but but that is you know one of the effects of this uh, lack of a rule about not needing MPs or MPPs to live in the riding. It does give the the party leaders at least that chance that they might not otherwise get. Now, after Brian Mulroney won the 1983 Progressive Conservative leadership federally, uh, that the Tories had I, I'm trying to remember now if they had any seats in Quebec, I can't remember. They might have had one or two. Uh, So he wasn't going to get one of them to resign, create a by-election so he could get in. So he ran in Nova Scotia. Peter McKay's father, Elmer McKay, held the riding called Central Nova. And Brian Mulroney basically said to the folks there, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Elect me. Let me get in. And uh, Elmer will be back next time in the federal election. I'll run in Quebec next time after that. And that's exactly what happened. He won that by-election and then uh, contested a seat in his um, Bay Como riding, Manicouagan, in the ensuing 1984 federal election. And Jean Chrétien did the same thing. I think he sought a seat when he came back into public life after he won the 1990 leadership for uh, the federal liberals. Uh, He won a seat again. I think it was uh, Beau Séjour in New Brunswick, not in Quebec because the liberals at that point were so low, they didn't really have anybody who was going to give up a seat for the leader. And as a result, He came back into public life in New Brunswick, said the same kind of thing. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. I'll be running in Quebec next time. And that's exactly what he did. So anyway, a very long answer to what was a good question. So we thank the listener for that. If you'd like to ask any other questions about content on the show, please feel free to email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. Now on to issue one. Finally, let me just say one thing about uh, Doug Ford and his conservatives, and that is that they are desperate and flailing. And of course, they want you to be talking about me. That was Bonnie Crombie at her first appearance at the Queen's Park Media Studio last week. We mentioned in our last episode that Crombie is already facing attack ads from the Ontario PC party over being seen in fancy cars or donations that she received from developers during her campaign for leader. During her appearance at Queen's Park, she fired back at the premier, presenting the differences between herself and him. I have worked very, very hard in my life to achieve everything I have. I have earned every single penny. I have been not handed a political dynasty, nor have I been handed a business that has been built up for my offspring to run. Now, what the Ford Conservatives seem to be lacking in their attacks on the new liberal leader are, what do we call them? Um, What is it? Uh, oh, Oh, yes, I remember now. Actual facts. So let's dig into that a little more, shall we, JMM? 
Right. So as we've uh, mentioned before, uh, in fact, uh, Bonnie Crombie said this to us uh, on the uh, night that she won the leadership uh, during our live stream. Uh, not only uh, does she not have a Maserati, she does not have any car uh, at the moment. She's been uh, using the uh, city of Mississauga's uh, fleet uh, vehicles when she uh, needs to get around. Uh, both she and the developer in question deny that she's ever been on an executive jet uh, with uh, the developer as uh, Ford and the Progressive Conservatives have alleged. Uh, we mentioned this last week, but her home in New York State on Long Island is not in the Hamptons and is in fact uh, pretty far from what we would even generously refer to as the Hamptons. And, you know, the obvious point here is Doug Ford is the Premier of Ontario, uh, leading the Progressive Conservative Party, has won uh, two general elections. He has taken far more money from developers than the mayor of Mississauga uh, would have access to. There's just really no competition there. So uh, despite the fact that none of the facts is actually accurate in these ads, the conservatives are running them because, of course, they are trying hard to frame their opponent before their opponent gets a chance to basically explain to Ontarians who she is. It's a tried, tested and true technique in politics. Question is, have these early attacks shaken the confidence of Ontario voters? And apparently the answer is mm, not so much. Um I think it's fair to say our listeners know how we feel about polls. They cannot predict what people will do tomorrow. They are usually a very accurate indication of what people thought yesterday. Having said that, Main Street, uh, which is a pretty reputable outfit, put out a poll asking if an election were held today, how would you vote? And the numbers have moved quite a bit since last weekend's Liberal Convention. Uh, that's right. Uh, Main Street's polling suggests that if an election were held today, uh, the Tories would take 31% of the vote and the Liberals would take 30% of that vote. So uh, statistically very close to a tie. It also found that Premier Doug Ford is seen as strongly unfavorable to 40% of respondents. And Bonnie Crombie gets a big, um, I don't know, in terms of how respondents felt about her. Uh, still a very large uh, section of, of the electorate has not made up their mind uh, about Crombie. As a new leader, that's uh, predictable. And honestly, if you're the Liberals, uh, that's probably not a bad thing. But there was one point in the poll that I did find interesting. Main Street asked respondents who they thought would best handle the Greenbelt uh, among uh, the major political parties. Only 21% of voters picked Doug Ford and the, the PC party, which probably isn't surprising given uh, the events of the past year. But only 22% say the NDP and only 17% uh, say the Liberals. So despite all the headlines and all of the, the oxygen that this issue has consumed uh, over the past 12 months, it doesn't really seem to be benefiting the opposition parties very much. Yeah, you've got to assume that the progressive conservatives will be pretty happy with those numbers given all of what's transpired. Now, there was another moment at the Liberal leadership election two weekends ago. John Michael, you and I were both there at the Metro Convention Center offering gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. And there was a moment during all of that that, I don't know about you, but I did not trip to the significance of it as it was happening. And we should just take a moment here to describe what happened. Uh, they were trying to, I guess, extol the virtues of John Fraser, who was the two-time interim leader of the Liberals, who is, for the second time, standing down now that the Liberals have a new leader in place. And in the, I guess, tribute videos to him before he came out to speak, in one of the videos was the current speaker of the Federal House of Commons, Greg Fergus. And he appeared on the screen at the event wearing his speaker's uniform. Fergus, of course, was elected in the last federal election as a liberal MP. Uh, but then the idea is, you know, if you become speaker, which he now has, 
you're neutral and you're not supposed to take part in partisan events. This has caused an enormous kerfuffle in the nation's capital. Maybe, John Michael, you could take us through it a bit. Yeah, as you say, the speaker is supposed to be neutral. Uh, He's actually not even supposed to vote in the commons except to break a tie. And there are norms and rules about how they're supposed to vote, even in those relatively rare circumstances. It's all about uh, preserving neutrality and um, preserving the uh, decorum of debates, uh, that kind of thing. The speaker is supposed to, well, speak for the House of Commons as a whole and not the government or the opposition or any one political party. So the fact that Fergus cut a video for a Liberal Party event, even if it wasn't the federal Liberals, is uh, being seen certainly by the opposition uh, federally as a breach of that principle. The fact that the video was filmed from inside his office, wearing his speaker's robes, uh, particularly offended some conservatives uh, who who saw the the video. The context here that I I think people should also remember is that, uh, you know, Fergus is a a close friend of Fraser's and, and was praising him for, in part, the role that Fraser played in getting Fergus into politics in the first place and supporting him to the point where he could rise to the level of Speaker of the House of Commons. You know, I I think an outside observer might understand why uh, Fergus would think that the trappings of his office were an important part of that story, of that message. But he has obviously uh, caused himself some trouble over it. Um, The opposition parties are scrutinizing his actions in a commons committee, and we will see what they say about it. Um, uh, Our listeners may not need this reminder, but Fergus even has the job of the speaker's role because his predecessor, Anthony Rota, also gave MPs reason to question his judgment uh, by uh, welcoming a... uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, Waffen SS veteran to the House of Commons. Uh, now, that was obviously a, a very big scandal. Rota resigned after several days of uproar. There does not seem to be the same kind of pressure on Fergus right now to resign. Uh, that is true, although I noticed there are no liberal MPs either going to bat for him. It seems that everybody in the Federal House of Commons acknowledges uh, that Greg Fergus made a mistake. And the only question now is how big a price does he have to pay for that mistake? Uh, Clearly, he's been embarrassed. He's apologized. He's being sort of informally sanctioned at the moment. Whether he'll have to quit his job, we shall see. On to issue two. Last week, the Office of the Auditor General of Ontario unveiled its annual report that gives us a lot of insight into a vast array of things the province does. For example, decisions such as the government's proposed move of the Ontario Science Centre to the waterfront, or the effect emergency room closures are having on Ontarians. JMM, if you would, the highlights, please. Uh, well, let's start with healthcare, which uh, I wrote about uh, last week for TVO.org. Uh, healthcare, of course, is the single biggest line item in the province's budget at $81 billion. So uh, you would think that they would know how to spend it well. Uh, the uh, Auditor General's report uh, devotes substantial chapters, not just one chapter, but multiple chapters to uh, multiple aspects of healthcare, uh, from things like uh, emergency room services to uh, specifically healthcare delivery in Northern Ontario. Let's just start with emergency rooms here. Uh, ER closures were identified as a major problem by the Auditor General. In places like Minden, that ER was closed entirely due to a lack of staff. 
and the government has basically been relying on uh, stopgap and temporary measures to keep ERs running. Sometimes the shortage of physicians is the problem, and the government does have a, a program to uh, pay physicians extra to come work in places where those services are urgently needed. But other times, it's uh, a lack of nurses, and uh, the government has really struggled to really build up the, the nursing uh, workforce and the staffing sort of pipeline to keep these places open. I mentioned Northern Ontario. Uh, one of the most salient facts about this province is that 90% of its land mass contains less than 10% of its population. And uh, it's just very, very difficult to provide uh, all services for Northern Ontario. But healthcare, of course, is uh, no exception there. Uh, shortages in staff uh, have closed uh, obstetrics departments in uh, some towns. So uh, places like uh, Wawa or, or uh, Moose Factory, a person uh, will just have to leave town uh, to get their uh, pregnancy care uh, when they uh, need it. Well, let's go back to the Ontario Science Centre example. And the Auditor General says that the province's so-called business case for that move to the waterfront is missing key information. And therefore, the business case the province is trying to make for the move isn't quite there. We did, however, get some clarification on the parking situation. Take us through that. (laughs) Then Acting Auditor General Nick Stavropoulos noted last week uh, some factors uh, were not included in the business plan, including the cost of building the uh, parking garage. Costs have been estimated at about half a billion dollars, uh, but also uh, things like uh, legal costs, uh, the cost to repair and upgrade the existing science center uh, in Midtown Toronto. Uh, other details include that the new building would have 18% less space for exhibits. Schools, which make up 25% of the center's visitors, were not consulted on the move. Uh, 300 responses were gathered from members of the Science Teachers Association of Ontario by the Auditor General, and 46% of them said the new location would likely affect their decision to take students there. And finally, the cost to repair the existing facility will be around $369 million. But the Science Centre had asked for funding at least three times in the past five years, but was denied each time. We talked about last week how the business case seemed to be on shaky grounds. Uh, In fact, I always called it a so-called business case because my spidey senses were telling me that uh, maybe not everything that ought to be considered was in that business case. And the Auditor General, what do you know, has come out a, a couple of weeks later and said, yep, that's in fact the case. Uh, the business case now feels very unstable. Any other items from the AG's report that caught your fancy? One other report that caught my eye was about uh, driver's education and driving tests. This chapter from the Auditor General report found that novice drivers, specifically from urban locations, who took their road tests in rural or suburban test centers, had a 16 to 27 percent higher chance of getting into a collision. Uh, Anybody who's taken these driving tests in the last decade or so, uh, you know, everybody hears stories about, you know, kids from the city going out to rural places to get their driving test because it is allegedly uh, easier to get uh, a pass. So the ministry did not uh, monitor this issue or release data related to this issue. Auditors also visited driving schools and were allowed to shorten or even abandon in-car training while still being issued their certificate. So there is uh, uh, also a practice of route training where instructors will take students on the route that they will take during their test. Uh, Focusing on route training rather than driving skills, uh, the auditor found undermines the examination process. And the ministry paid additional funds to Plenary and Serco, the organizations that administer drive tests to extend operating hours. Uh, When that was 
uh, the responsibility of those organizations. That resulted in $19.2 million being spent to extend those hours. Let me just say for the record that when I had to get my driver's test done, I didn't have the luxury of going out to rural Ontario. I had to get it done <laughs> in the hard scrabble streets of Hamilton, Ontario. And I certainly never had a driving instructor who uh, cooked the books for me the way this happens. Holy smokes. And I hope you didn't either. Now, be honest with me. You, you got yours the good old fashioned way, too, I hope. Well, I, I got my uh, test at uh, the location in, I guess it must be Don Valley East, but, it's, it's, you know, within Metro Toronto, let me put it that way. I certainly did not drive out to uh, <laughs> suburban or rural Ontario. I don't know whether to be furious about this or jealous about this because I did flunk my first time out. I was going to ask. <laughs> you said like maybe there was uh, some difficulty and, and you're still irritated about it. <laughs> well, that's right. I guess I failed my first time out because I didn't have a sweet driving instructor who cooked the books for me the way some of this is working out. Anyways, let's hope they get to the bottom of all of that. Let me put one last thing on the table here, and that is back in the day, the Auditor General's report was pretty much about how the government was spending your tax dollars. That was it. Do we get value for the money we spend? Period. Full stop. It has become so much more than that. Now, the Auditor General is commenting on things such as whether enough people were consulted when the government made its decision about X, Y, or Z, stuff that is really not strictly about expenditures, but rather has more to do with how governments do their jobs. So I did want to ask you what you think about what some might call mission creep by successive Auditors General. Uh, you said successive Auditors General. I think this is really the, the key uh, question because, uh, you know, this is now at least, uh, I think, three auditors general that I think have faced complaints from the government of the day that uh, they are uh, overstepping the traditional bounds of their job. And uh, I, I think my extremely uh, rigorous uh, stand on this issue is it depends. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if we think back to uh, Bonnie Lissick's report on the Greenbelt, for example, I mean, was that a matter of tracking public money? Not Really, it, at best, there was an argument that government action was creating private wealth for well-connected landowners. But it really wasn't a case of taxpayer dollars being spent or misspent. Although I guess you could say maybe in terms of the infrastructure that was going to be needed to build homes. But that was really, I think, a side issue. Uh, on the other hand, if you ask me if that report was extremely important for the public, I would say unequivocally yes. Now, when I look at something like the Science Center business case, I think the Auditor General report is on pretty solid ground when it says that, you know, substantial costs weren't included and that the government hasn't been terribly clear about expensive parts of the plan, like a half billion dollar parking garage, because this will be a, a matter of uh, substantial public expense. And even if the, the Science Center Ontario Place deal is not... Um, uh, currently, you know, etched in stone, this is going to be a substantial expenditure of public funds. And I think there the auditor is on pretty solid ground to say like, hey, whoa, you know, have we have we considered everything fully? Now, then there's that issue of, you know, whether public consultation is really an important part of the story, right? The Auditor General does say a few times in this report that um, basically important stakeholders in the process uh, either were not consulted or were not listened to. And whether this is to everybody's taste or not is obviously an open question, but I think there's an area where you could more fairly say that the Auditor General uh, probably doesn't need to be commenting on that, except insofar as when these con consultations are done, there is less risk of waste or misspending. But, you know, that's getting into like second and third degree concerns and uh, uh, is, is maybe not really strictly necessary given the auditor's role. 
Well, the Auditor's General report is big. I think it's, what is it, 1,200 pages or something like that? It's huge. It takes a whole year to put together, so we have put a link to it in the show notes of the podcast in case our listeners want to dive into the whole thing. And now, on to issue three. Back in May, then-Minister of Housing Steve Clark introduced Bill 112, the so-called Hazel McCallion Act, which set the table for the region of Peel to dissolve. Peel region was created 50 years ago by the Bill Davis government, and it's currently the largest upper-tier municipality in the province of Ontario. But as the two biggest cities in Peel, that's Mississauga and Brampton, have grown, Mississauga has long expressed a strong desire to leave the region and be out on its own. And the current government struck a blue-ribbon panel of experts to study the matter and figure out how the divorce could proceed without any one of the municipalities within Peel being adversely affected. Now, the government has floated a trial balloon suggesting the dissolution of Peel might be reversed. Okay, JMM, why the possible reversal? Well, let's uh, go back a bit. Uh, we've mentioned, you know, the city of Brampton has uh, always been skeptical of the case for dissolution. Uh, back in 2019, uh, Deloitte, which had done a financial analysis on the region, uh, released uh, numbers uh, showing that uh, the uh, dissolution of Peel region would be very costly to taxpayers. Uh, they have since updated those numbers, and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown uh, has said that the dissolution would be a financial disaster for Brampton. There could be an additional $1.3 billion in operating costs for the city. You know, at, at issue here is the argument that money is flowing from Mississauga to the cities of Brampton and Caledon, uh, both to help fund uh, growing infrastructure budgets uh, in those cities where the population is still growing pretty rapidly, uh, as well as some operating costs. Uh, Caledon Mayor Annette Groves has also urged the province to reconsider uh, dissolution. Uh, <laughs> One notable voice here, as she is still the mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, Ontario Liberal leader. Uh, she was uh, very quick to respond to Patrick Brown's claims. I'm not sure why Mayor Brown is trying to distract um, from the work on hand. It, it seems to be a desperate attempt to derail a process that is well in hand, a process that um, the Premier himself appointed a, a group um, that he has confidence in. And quite frankly, I've met with them and I have confidence in them as well. The Premier and I don't agree on a lot of things, but we do agree on dissolution of the region of Peel. Uh, Crombie's concerns stem from an investigation from The Pointer, that's a local news outlet in Brampton, uh, that showed senior Peel region staff attempting to uh, direct Deloitte's financial analysis in favor of the region uh, sticking together, an allegation basically that, once again, you could almost say the, the business case is being cooked. Um, regional counselors then paid for another analysis by Ernst & Young, uh, which uh, found that an independent Mississauga could save money. The plot thickens. So this is the backdrop we now find ourselves in. Bonnie Crombie, Patrick Brown, Annette Groves, and Doug Ford all in the mix here, while uncertainty looms over what will happen next, which is causing a great deal of anxiety for both the people and the employees of Peel Region. My question is, how much of this sober second thought by Premier Ford do you think has its roots in trying to, I believe the technical term in politics is, screw over Bonnie Crombie now that she <laughs> is the Ontario Liberal leader? Uh, it's not a little. <laughs> One might even say it could very well be a lot. Uh, I mean, what do we think carries more influence with uh, Premier Ford? Uh, you and I have both been reasonably close observers uh, of Ford for a while now. Uh, a study from Deloitte or Ernst & Young or 
the chance to stick the knife into a political rival. <laughs> <laughs> I think to ask the question is to answer it. But yes. let's follow up on the other angle, and that is about the thousands of employees in Peel and what might happen to them. Our producer, Matthew O'Mara, reached out to Brampton Ward 9 and 10 Regional Councillor Gurpartap Singh Tour, who talked about the potential impact on all of them. If I give a quick example, on, on the same file uh, that I follow up with the Region Appeal on a bi-weekly basis, I've switched over to the third manager that's dealing with that file now uh, because of the managers before them finding employment elsewhere. I'm Gripatov Singtour, Regional Counselor for Wards 9 and 10 in the city of Brampton. Today we had Region Appeal chambers packed with paramedics uh, because they have the uncertainty, are we still going to have these jobs? Because if not, um, you know, that that employment retention policies that we have at the region appeal, they simply fail. If we can't retain a, a critical mass of paramedics to answer the 911 calls and emergency calls that we get them because they want certainty and they will go to other paramedic uh, services across the country uh, where they, they would be much more valued. Uh, you know, everything lies uh, in the hands of the province, uh, what they are going to decide to do, what the findings of the transition board are going to be. Uh, we're just eagerly awaiting those decisions. Councillor Tour told Matthew that one silver lining of the dissolution would be the downloading of infrastructure planning to municipalities, which is part of Bill 23, the uh, More Homes Built Faster Act. Uh, cities like Brampton would have a real concrete date on when they could be more involved in building new roads. But overall, the wait is overshadowing any potential benefits. Now, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Paul Calandra, has thus far been mum on the final decision for the region. So presumably the work by the Blue Ribbon Panel exploring the dissolution of the region continues. They're working towards a January 1st, 2025 deadline. Or are they? Do we know what's happening there, in fact? There are three stages the transition board has identified, uh, informing decisions, preparing for the dissolution, and then implementing uh, recommendations. Right now, they, the work they would be doing would be determining how programs and services will be transferred to the individual municipalities, like uh, paramedic services uh, that we've talked about previously. Uh, policing is another one. Uh, the final report is set to be shared in the summer of next year, that's 2024, and it would include issues like, for example, what happens with Peel Regional Police at the moment. Uh, Brampton and Mississauga share a single police force, and Caledon relies on the Ontario Provincial Police for its policing services. Uh, does the police force become two separate entities? The, uh, the Peel police themselves have said that they think it's best to just stay a single police force uh, for now. Uh, Peel's paramedic union has expressed concerns over how dissolution would affect recruitment in the region. Uh, so there is just a lot to consider. And, uh, you know, January 2025 is not that far off. No, it sure is not. Uh, let's remind everybody that back in May on the agenda, I had a chance to speak with Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Caledon Mayor Annette Groves and Mississauga City Councillor Alvin Tejo about this subject. Now, things, of course, have changed a little bit since last May, uh, but the conversation, I think, still holds up in many ways. And so we will put a link to that conversation in the podcast show notes in case people want to check that out as well. 
Uh, there was one other thing that I wanted to add about this whole story for people to consider. Uh, I mentioned it in uh, my uh, column, but uh, I, I will just stay, say it again here. Ontario is very likely to adopt new riding boundaries uh, before the next election. Uh, the practice has been to adopt the federal uh, riding boundaries in southern Ontario. Um, what has already happened in the federal uh, riding boundaries for Peel Region is that uh, Brampton and Caledon uh, are getting a, a additional riding, whereas Mississauga is staying uh, at its current count of six uh, MPs. So if those uh, ridings are in fact adopted provincially, one of the things that is happening here is that the political weight of Brampton and Caledon is going to increase for the next election. And so a government might reasonably conclude that, uh, I don't know if this is an example of skating where the puck is going, but if they are running against Bonnie Crombie, they are going to lose some seats in Mississauga. But if they can make up some of those seats in Brampton and Caledon, well, there's going to be six seats to win there too. So that is just one thing that I would uh, have our, our listeners keep in mind. I love it when my partner quotes Wayne Gretzky. Who he probably wouldn't even know on the street if he walked past him, but I love it when you do that anyway. I, I think I would recognize Gretzky. Just don't ask me to recognize any other hockey players. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let me say one more thing about this subject, and that is we referred earlier to the fact that these regional governments were created 50 years ago by the Bill Davis government. We're talking about uh, Hamilton Wentworth and York and Durham, Halton, Peel, all these regions. These regional governments were created 50 years ago. And um, the guy who did it was actually named Darcy McHugh. He was the Minister of Municipal Affairs. Uh, believe it or not, during his political career 50 years ago, he actually all at the same time was the Minister of the Treasury, Economics, Intergovernmental Affairs, Municipal Affairs, and Housing. They used to call him the Minister of Everything because he, he seemed to have a, a finger in so many different pies within government. I raise his name because Darcy McHugh uh, died last week at the age of 90. And um, I don't know what he'd think about uh, all the messing around that's going on with Peel Region right now, but I wanted to note his death because he was such a significant person in the history of the province of Ontario. He was, in fact, the guy on the second last ballot who uh, had to drop off at the 71 PC Leadership Convention and took a lot of his delegates uh, with him to Bill Davis. So he's the guy at two o'clock in the morning at Maple Leaf Gardens in February of 1971 that essentially made Bill Davis the PC party leader and the premier. I think he was only 37 years old at the time, so a bit early for him to run for leader, but he was the kingmaker. Uh, he then got rewarded by Mr. Davis with uh, this plethora of roles in cabinet. And um, Darcy McHugh left in 1978, uh, having really been a solid figure at Queen's Park. He went into the private sector and uh, he wrote a book called, he, he represented uh, a riding in southwestern Ontario um, that was in and around the municipality of Kent. And they used to call him the Duke of Kent because he was such a, he was, he was a high flyer, that guy. And so I want to remember Darcy McHugh on this occasion where they are considering the dissolution of Peel and his passing last week. Darcy McHugh, rest in peace at the age of 90. Now, on to your column, my column. Time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about the columns that we wrote for TVO.org the past week. JMM, what do you want to focus on? 
Uh, I wrote about the uh, maybe not happening dissolution of Peel Region and uh, why I think that uh, nobody, certainly nobody in government should be surprised that uh, despite everybody's claims going into this thing that they were going to find a fair deal for taxpayers and whatnot, uh, that nobody should be surprised that this could end up being pretty costly. And I think this is just a basic point about government that I like to make every once in a while, that which is that governments do things. They do the, the vast majority of money that goes out of the door is to do the things that everybody actually agrees we should be doing. If you're talking about the province, that's uh, healthcare and education. But if you're talking about municipalities, it's things like waste collection and policing and sewers and clean water. And all of those jobs have to be done whether you talk about a single uh, regional government or multiple independent governments or whatever. Uh, the reality is that there's just not a, a ton of efficiencies to find. And frankly, uh, anybody producing consultant reports uh, showing or claiming to show uh, that there are massive uh, savings, potential savings to be had should be treated very skeptically. Uh, so that's what I wrote about last week. Uh, how about you, Steve? Well, I was intrigued about uh, Bonnie Crombie's first week as Ontario Liberal leader, and I was intrigued from this standpoint. You know, when an outsider wins the leadership of a party, uh, it's often awkward right off the beginning. And I think, uh, you know, I can remember well in 2015, Patrick Brown winning the Ontario PC party leadership in a landslide, but having only been endorsed by one member of that PC caucus, and they never really took to him. And I was curious uh, to see how it would work for Mayor Crombie with her first week, because, of course, she's not a member of the Ontario legislature. She's got federal experience. She's got municipal experience, but none at the provincial level. So how did that first week go? Well, by all accounts, it went pretty well. Uh, a good first meeting with the Liberal Provincial Council, a good first meeting with the caucus, uh, a, a pretty solid first performance at her first news conference at Queen's Park, uh, showing a lot of moxie when attacked by the Premier's new attack ads. Uh, she'll be meeting uh, the two challengers, the two prime challengers uh, for her job uh, this week at Queen's Park, uh, Nate Erskine-Smith and Yasser Nakvi. Uh, big questions about whether or not they're going to stick around or will they run for her in the next provincial election. Uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that future weeks are not going to be as good as this one was. There are no doubt plenty of difficulties to come for the Ontario Liberal leader, but this seemed to be a pretty good start for her. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. Make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org, as listener Teresa has done. She wanted to talk to us about the pronunciation of the new Green MPP's first name, which is spelled A-I-S... L-I-N-N. -N. And Teresa writes, Hi, Steve and JMM. I wonder how many volunteers on Ashlyn's campaign will write you, as I know many of us are fans. Her name is pronounced Ashlyn. It's Gaelic. I know many people didn't know how to pronounce it on election day either. They just needed to know where she was on the very long ballot. For future reference, remember, it's Ashlyn. There we go, Teresa. Thank you very much, because I think we all pronounced it Aislin last week, which is the phonetic pronunciation. But given that it's Gaelic, it'll always be Ashlyn from here on out. Thank you. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye, everyone. <laughs>